Steve. Hi. Steve. Hello. <laughs> Great to speak to you, man. Nice to speak to you too. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. We've just been like through all kinds of technical fun getting this working. Oh, I know. Seems to be working. <laughs> I know the feeling. <laughs> Wow, this is this is a whole it's a brave new world, Steve. We're <laughs> so yeah. As, as you know, then this is this is the first time we've done this. Yeah. So d just to sort of briefly introduce us, I met Jasmine fairly recently. We've we started talking about meditation. Um, she she has a background in it. Uh, maybe I, I won't try and explain that. Um, <laughs> you could do that jasmine my background is um in uh vipassana the the goenka tradition originally yeah. but i've sort of started exploring lots of different things recently which led me to talking to jasmine and jasmine's background uh if she can fill us in on that yeah so uh for myself i um i i also am a vipassana practice uh, practitioner but i uh, came in through like a yogic path and I also am now a teacher with Search Inside Yourself so they are specialized with in mindfulness at the workplace cool. so it's a range of different uh, techniques and practices that come together and actually I don't know so much about yourself but Steve gave some raving reviews uh, and how I wanted it to be is not necessarily having like researched your entire background, but for it to come more naturally as a conversation and then showing up. Yeah. And just, yeah. Ju and just for, for listeners um, to understand, we, we were going to meet Steve in person. Um, but sadly this uh, <laughs> COVID crisis has, has cut, cut off everything like that at the moment, um, which is a, a damn shame. But um, it's great to be able to, to speak to you anyway, Steve, um, through the magic of, of Skype. So, I mean, there, there's so much I'd love to talk to you about. I did, I did um, prepare a few, a few little questions, but perhaps, I mean, I'd be really interested to kick off with the, the podcast thing. You've been doing an amazing podcast Find it yourselves, listeners, at guruviking.com. <laughs> for, for a few years now, right? Um, and it's it's brilliant. There's tons of really amazing interviews on there with with some really amazing um, guests. And I, I just wanted to ask you about that. Really, you, what what's your what have you learned from doing that? Because now you've you've had these opportunities to, to talk to so many amazing people around the world. What what's been your what are your big takeaways, Steve? Well. <laughs> Yeah, thank you for your kind words about the podcast. It's it is a lot of fun, um, and you know the, some of the guests I've had on, or most of them really are really fantastic. Well, I should say all of them are wonderful. <laughs> yes, <laughs> well, I like all of them. You know, I like all of them anyway. So uh, yeah, I've learned a lot doing it, doing that podcast. Um, you know, many of my guests are experts in their fields with decades of study and practice so talking to somebody like that you know you have someone who's an expert on something all you've ever wanted to know about that you can ask them you know yeah uh, especially when they're an expert in something that i'm interested in yeah uh, so then i already know something and you know yeah. i always find that when you when you get to, you know do a bit of research and learn a bit about something it opens up a lot of questions a lot more questions 
Oh, what about yeah okay well if that's that if that's true and that's true and that's true in this way of thinking what about this you know and that and yeah. they don't the books or you know the lectures don't have the what about this so you can ask them that it's like having a dialogue with the author of of the book or whatever it is so it's great yeah yeah um, so but I, you know but in addition to the information i i also i've learned quite a bit by being exposed to how some of these people think yeah and how they answer questions and sequence information um, that's also quite interesting, and that's a that's a trans um, translatable skill across disciplines. Yeah. Uh, you know how you organize information if you're talking about this sort of meditation compared to you know ancient history or uh, anything really you know, politics, whatever you want to talk about. I mostly focus on people who are doing meditation, but that way of organizing uh, and prioritizing information is very interesting. Another thing I think that I learn a lot from is where their answers come from. When someone answers from deep personal experience, yeah, you can. I think you can track it a little bit to its source, and there's a sort of non-verbal um, transmission, which sounds very mystical, but it's not that mystical because when I, how I learned to cook myself, for instance, was with my mother mostly, and I she didn't really tell me what to do or how to do it i mean there was bits of that but it was just sort yeah. of, she's cooking and then i'm there and then i pick up a few things and i notice things about the way she does it and i don't even really notice what i'm noticing little routines and little protocols that she has that she may or may not be aware of that just come from her many years of experience cooking yeah and it's those hundred little things that you pick up that are you know really the secret source i think a lot of the time uh, you can't really get that from books. I'm being totally distracted here by my son in the background. Oh, oh. So, hello, hello, this is Luca. Hello, Luca. <laughs> he's he's eight years old. Oh, <laughs> he can be very annoying sometimes, <laughs> sneaking around the background. He can't even hear us because I'm I'm listening on headphones. I can hear so, it. hang on. There you go. You can say hello, Luca. Hello. Hi, Lucas. You're off school, eh? I'm not. I'm not Lucas. I'm Luca. Luca. Okay. My Luca. apologies. You're off school, are you? Um, there's no school today because of the government. It? That's great. <laughs> but I still have to do homework. Oh no! From my mom. That's a, that's a rubbish apocalypse. <laughs> well, that's that's cool. That's great. Cool. Right. Off you go, Luca. Bye bye. I told you we could get headphones if you wanted to join us. <laughs> right, and shut the door. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks. All right. So, t taking taking from that, like, what what's your um, how has it changed your perspective on on the range of I, I guess, or has it changed your perspective on on the the range of um, spiritual experience? Um, yes, I think listening which is an important part of a conversation, um, is uh, very informative for other kinds of, to learn about other sorts of experiences, other people's experiences. And one of the things that I try to do in my own podcast, which is just a style, I suppose, is I sort of, I try to uh, take their worldview in a way, yeah. or accept their yeah. point of view. So some yeah. people may maybe would in, interview a meditator and, and question certain claims in certain sorts of ways, 
Uh, yeah. And, and I question, I do question things, but I tend to try. So I say, okay, I assume that they are correct for the yeah. purposes of the conversation. And, yeah, that, yeah. and that, I think, when you start to take that other person's view and you start to allow the guest to take you into their world and explain yeah. how it works from their perspective, then it's, it's a tremendous learning experience. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I love that. And it's it's something that I've really enjoyed about your podcast. It's just that you you really allow guests a lot of space just to kind of to, to let, let them ramble and then prompt them occasionally. And, and that's, for, to me, it makes a great listening experience. I've I listened to lots of podcasts, uh, kind of on the Dharma type stuff since I got into them only really about four or five months ago. Mm. Some, of, some of the, some of the, the interviewers are just like combative and it's just yeah. come on this guy's been meditating for like 40 years you movie excuse me i have to beat that out again jasmine doesn't like me swearing um <laughs> you know you don't know what you're talking about why question the guy like just let him talk <laughs> and, and that's me yeah i think the combative approach can be a creative one yeah um it can be it, it can it can in a certain sense when you put someone against the ropes yeah, uh, they have to be. You might put them in a new spot, and then they yeah. have to talk from their perspective in that new spot, which can be quite creative. So I don't yeah, think yeah. It's, the, it's necessarily a problem to be combative if it's productive and respectful, like respectful combat. You know, it's like yeah. uh, like the martial arts. You know, you <laughs> when you're training with somebody, you're fighting them. But it's sort of, but you also respect them at the same time because they're your training partner, and thanks to them, you get to, to train. And it's a yeah. little bit like that with a with a guest on the podcast. By all means, I think go. You know, you can you can be a bit combative if that's a style, and it's yeah. useful. But there's that sense of well, of I think respect. You know that, that we're co-creating yeah. this uh, this war of <laughs> words. Yeah, I'm going to turn the light on. I didn't know we were going to be on go video, so I'm going to turn the light on. Oh, okay, okay. So, what's your practice like, Steve? For those who don't know. My own personal meditation practice, you mean? Yeah. And particularly maybe in a time of crisis like now, where a lot of people are finding as though mental health and distress is becoming more prominent. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so you're, you, so you, okay, I can talk about my own personal practice in the midst of a situation like that would that be useful yeah yeah is that what you're asking i mean it's it's very free flow what we're doing so however you interpret it yeah sure well okay i'll just tell you a bit about my regular kind of practicing then well you know uh, it's quite simple really it's very basic i do some meditation each day and um, that's the main, at the moment, thrust or passion uh, of my practice. I also do various sorts of movement practices as well uh, throughout the throughout the week. Uh, I do a little bit of strength training and do a way of moving that I uh, sort of synthesized or created called Movement Koan Method, which is um, a way of moving your body um, in a, that nourishes the joints and explores all kinds of interesting themes. Because a koan is a Zen riddle. Um, in the Zen tradition, they have these koans. What's the sound of one hand clapping and things like that? People may be aware of that sort of thing. And they're training tools, 
you're given this sort of riddle by your Zen teacher, and principally in the Rinzai tradition. And then you go off, you go into your Dokuzan, you get your riddle, your koan, and then you go back to the Zendo meditation hall and you sit there and you ask yourself the question, who am I, who am I, who am I, whatever is the riddle. And it's a training tool, essentially. And so to investigate facets of awakening, you could say, or to um, throw you into a kind of open state, something like this. There's all sorts of uh, there's all sorts of ways of interpreting that. But anyway, in the movement kind method, that's what a lot of that is. I mean, on the one hand, it's it's a good way of moving the body, moving limbs in different directions at the same time, seeing how little effort you can exert while you're standing on one leg and swinging the other, and all that sort of thing. And these can all be lenses to look at certain themes. Uh, so uh, I, I engage in that very regularly. Um, and also, of course, a little bit of Qigong, you know, sort of thing. A bit of yoga, that sort of thing, really. But my mainstay, I think, my main um, passion at the moment is meditation. Yeah. And what, what um, do you use a, a particular technique for that? I actually had a, I had a question written down, which was, could you explain your, your your practice to a child, to a layperson, to an experienced meditator? Kind of three levels of it, mm. if that would make sense. Yeah, that's a great really question. Great question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is a great question. Uh, okay, yeah, to a child, the way I'd, I'd explain my meditation practice would be, uh, I think to, when you explain something to a child, most important thing is the modeling. The model. <laughs> you know, I think when now I'm not an expert in child education, so this is my unqualified opinion. I don't have a child, unlike you with Luke, yeah. I don't have a son. Yeah. So, you know, this is sort of my thing here. But uh, I was once a child. That's true. And, um, <laughs> so that that's my uh, source of authority on this. Topic. But um, anyway, I think the most important thing is to model the practice, yeah. to be doing it. Uh, but also to, in a certain sense, have the practice showing in the, in your life in the way you are, and that's that will naturally happen. And uh -huh. I've, I find that uh, children seem to be quite receptive to the way you are, and they're very perceptive about all the little things. They pick up all the little things, and you sit there and you sort of try to tell the child, "Now, now, you know, this is this is this, and this is that." And yeah. very often they just lose interest immediately. <laughs> <laughs> but um but if you can catch their fascination yeah um and often i think the way to do that is also is to be interested in the child to yeah. regard them with interest and that's yeah. also actually a meditation technique in yeah. a way isn't it to yeah, take yeah. regard an object with interest and fascination and openness and that allows a child i think to flourish and their curiosity to flourish you know mm -hmm. and then a little that's what so that's what i would say i would um I would just sort of be that way with a child. And then if they were interested, you know, I'd say, okay, just give them little technical instructions. Feel your body, you know, feel your head, feel your bottom on the ground, things like that. Little things. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's a way of explaining the practice, I think, so that they can get into it a bit. Um, to a lay person, that, this happened to me very recently. I was going through a border. Uh, an international border at an airport and the agent there you know they ask you questions 
who are you and what do you want here? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, what do you have your papers and so on and so forth? And this particular agent was asking me that. And I was explaining who I am and what I'm doing and these are my papers and all that. And then they said, um, so there, then in the process of this interrogation, um, she started, she said to me, so, okay, well, give me an example of how you'd work with somebody, you know, in a meditation <laughs> way. And I said, well, and I started talking a bit about anxiety and so on. And then she said, oh, interesting. Well, I'm not really, uh, I don't really suffer much with anxiety, but I could use more concentration, you know, more focus. Uh, Actually, she said uh, focus. I could use some more focus, you know. And I said, well, that's very interesting. I said, well, the thing about your job that's so interesting is that you're sitting here in the booth and then people are coming and people are, and you're always having to deal with people. People are frightened sometimes or nervous, you know, and you're uh. questioning them. And, but, but in between, but I said to her then, um, but can you hear the trolley? And there was a baggage trolley going by. And she said, oh yeah. And I said, can you feel your, your body with your uniform on sitting on the chair? Can you feel that? And she said, yeah. And I said, and then if we, then if you look, can you see all the people? Very interesting nationalities, different nationalities, <clears throat> different colors of clothing. Quite an interesting mix. Uh-huh. And she says, yeah. And I, and I said, uh, well, in between each person that comes uh-huh. to see you, you have a moment there where you're basically not needed for anything. So you can, at that, in that moment, listen. What can you hear? Feel. What can you feel in your body? See. What can you see around you? The play of color and light. So in actual fact, this your government is could be paying you to meditate. <laughs> so that's how I would explain it to a layperson is, is a practical kind of nugget. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I love that. That's so hilarious. You had a chat with a <laughs> Yeah, it was really cool, actually. You know, it was uh, really cool. That is such a cool story. I love that. It's like, um, it's like, it, just, it sounds like straight out of a, a, a Zen book, actually. It's like... Oh, really? <laughs> Master, describe your meditation experience. <laughs> Can you hear the sound of the leaves in the trees? <laughs> it's, kind of, it's got that quality of like yeah. <laughs> answering with a question. It's beautiful. Well, those kinds of um, well, that's what she was asking me. She was sort of asking me the same question. Can you hear me? Yeah. She was asking me the same sort of. She was asking me that question, really, the same yeah. question you're asking. But you know, she was asking it per- partly to ascertain. You know, that's their job is to ask you questions and see if you're yeah. guilty about it or something. Right. Yeah. Right. Anyway, and the, and, and yeah. on the other hand, she was interested. She was interested yeah. in a certain kind of. Uh, of she was interested in focus, whatever yeah. that means to her. You know, I don't. Whatever she thinks focus would give her is uh-huh. what she's really interested in. Obviously. Yeah. Um, there's something that she thinks if she became more focused, she'd achieve or get, or she something would be better. Yeah. And so that's the best way to explain it to somebody because you can, you can say very little that's right on to what they're interested in uh, without having to explain all this unnecessary contextual information. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then there's a greater chance of it, I think, being useful for them. Oh, that's yeah. beautiful, man. So the, the third one then, how would you explain 
what you do to an experienced meditator, perhaps someone who's familiar with Buddhist stuff. Yeah, to an experienced meditator, I would say something like um, I'm enjoying. <laughs> I'd, say, I'd say something like, let's see. I'd say, isn't it wonderful? <laughs> um, the center falls apart yeah. and everything is alive. Nice. <laughs> That's what I say to the experience meditator. Isn't it wonderful? That's very poetic, also. Nice. So I love the different dis um, distinguishing like ways in which you you open and unfold it, and I think a lot of the perspective has been taken from where they're really coming from and showing up with them in that moment. And I think uh, it might be that. We'll take an imaginary person because I, I'm not going to point a finger at anyone. Um, it might be as though sometimes it, it's, it's hard to show up in where like telling, bridging that connection from where we're coming from mm. and to translating that to something understandable where someone else can really understand us too. And I think you have a really strong sense of being like, that is a real strength that you have. Oh, thank you. Nice. I, I wanted to ask you also about your, your summer retreat. So last year, um, dear listener, Steve did three hours a day, was it? A home retreat, which is also something that Jasmine will have some perspective on because she did that for mo most of a year, I believe. So um, I'd love to hear um, how that was for you. And, and perhaps we could like bounce, bounce some, um, some feels back from Jasmine on that as well. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I'm curious now about what Jasmine did, but I suppose I should answer your question first before I ask her question. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, okay. Yeah, well, <clears throat> when, in the summer, uh, we, don't, we, we don't teach as much because people are going on holidays and it's school holidays and so people yeah. aren't coming to events and so on. So um, I don't teach as much in terms publicly. So I come on the boat. I have an hour boat in the UK that I live on and usually around six weeks, actually. And there's lots of work to do, uh, you know, calls, business things, all sorts of work to do, just not a lot of traveling and public teaching in that sense. So one of the things that I have done over the last few years is taken that period of time to increase my practice and mm. do more practice than usual, do more meditation than, than usual during the summer. Mm -hmm. um, and the way I do it is I maintain my daily practice because I think the most, it's so vital to have a sort of golden thread of continuity of regular practice. So whatever mm -hmm. I do in my daily practice, mm -hmm. Um, will stay, so I get up and do my regular kind of thing. And then from there, having done my daily practice, I've kind mm. of nailed, I've, I've nailed life. You know, I, I'm victorious as a meditator because I've done my <laughs> minimum amount. Yeah. And then uh, from that place of, uh, from that fee positive feedback loop of, of victory of having done my relatively easy, you know, daily practice, yeah. I then do more. And so usually I do four hours um, 
then throughout the day, either in one block or two blocks or three blocks or four blocks, depending. Uh, Yeah, that's what I did. And this, and I, some, you know, this last one, I took the theme of, I took one one meditation technique, and other than my daily practice, I took one meditation technique and did that the entire time, all the time, which was focusing on the sensations that reveal the presence of the breath at the nostrils. So standard sort of thing that I think many people know about, focusing on the feeling, the sensations of the breath. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what I did for those six weeks. It was very interesting. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) Um, Let alone just like... Um, when you're in a, a silent meditation and then you're just doing exactly that for four days. I mean, even though it's broken up in how you've done it over that period of time, I'm sure that the effects were very intense. Yeah. I'm super keen to know what kind of experience you you had and what it was like doing that. Yeah. Well, as you as you rightly say, it's not. It's sort of a half retreat in a way, or a mini retreat, because I was doing other things during the day, you know, other times. But still, four hours is substantial enough increase from what I normally do mm. to you know produce an interesting outcome, you could say, or to you know to be interesting, um, and or to have an effect if you want or whatever. And so I learned a, a lot of things during that time. One of the things that's uh, about meditation is, of course, there are many, many different sorts of meditations. And one thing when you just choose one technique for a finite period of time is that you don't have to make any choices about your practice at all. You just simply do the thing that you've decided to do, and there's there's no there's no energy spent yeah. on choosing what technique shall I use? What's the best technique to use now? Is this the best technique I could be using now? Should I be doing this other kind of technique? And should I be doing this and the other? And that kind of decision-making process, much of which happens, by the way, during meditation, <laughs> which is where it shouldn't be happening in a way. You know, I think analysis of your meditation is an evaluation of your meditation is a really good thing to do when you're not meditating. But when you mm. are meditating, really, you should just apply whatever is the technique you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, uh, so that was cool. And because the technique is so simple, it also has, it, it continues on that theme of, of, of not needing to make very many decisions. Essentially, am I, do I have contact with the sensations of the breath at the nostrils? If the answer is no, and I'm doing anything else, then the answer is always come back to the sensations of the breath that reveal the presence of the breath at the nostrils. So it's a really easy algorithm, meditationally speaking. Other meditation practices have different algorithms, more complicated. You know, if you're doing body scanning, there's a lot more to do. Mm. Or if you're going from different sensations, just noting different sensations as they appear in your awareness, that also has uh, more complexity to it. Or if you're mm. visualizing yourself, you know, as Green Tara or something, you know, there's more to it. And that's not a bad thing. That has pros and cons. But one of the pros of, of something that's so simple as Hmm. contact with the sensations of the breath is that it's really easy much easier to um more of your energy could go into to the actual technique and that's really good for somebody like me so yeah i learned a, an awful lot um i guess i could say a couple of things 
I feel like actually, as I do more and more solo retreats, I feel that one of the main things that's happening is I'm getting better at doing solo retreats. <laughs> so I have this sense that maybe, you know, as I get better and better at doing solo retreats, whatever practice I can muster in that solo retreat is going to have more benefit. Um, so there's two, there's two, uh, fronts when you're thinking about practice the way I think about it is you've got the practice itself which in this case was concentration concentrating on the breath and I, as you as you said that can go in different directions and you, when you emailed me you said you asked is it shamatha is it jhana and there's different directions right, yeah, that can go. yeah that's the sort of technical progression in the same way that if you're doing exercise and you do weight training you're going to have a certain people will tend to have a certain effect when they do heavy lifting of weights mm. other if you do jogging then people will tend to have a certain adaptive effect that comes from doing jogging. And that's the same with the different meditation techniques. When you do a certain mm. kind of meditation technique, there's a sort of general trend of, that you, of development or progression or unfolding that yeah. one is likely to experience that's different for everybody, but broadly similar in the same mm -hmm. way that weight training is different for everyone, but broadly similar. But then there's the other side of it, which is the practice of practice, mm -hmm. which is no matter what technique you're doing, there's certain things they have in common. Yeah. There's the practice or, uh, you know, whether you're playing guitar or you're doing meditation or whatever it is, you have to get to do it. You have to sit down to meditate or do your practicing each day. And that in uh -huh. itself is quite a journey. Uh -huh. um, and you have to, and you begin to understand in different meditation techniques, your mind, the way your mind works. And those understandings, I think, are common to all or most techniques or at least the opportunity for those is so for me when it comes to solar retreat and in fact even daily practice one of the things i say to myself is how can i improve the container how can mm. i improve the the delivery system of my practice which is the routine or the structure so mm. that what i whatever i do in my practice however well that's going or however well i can do that's that's going to be in a certain sense uh optimized or amplified and so I learned a few things there about solar retreats. Each year I make so many mistakes and then uh, I go, okay, I will try not to do that one next time. And then I make some more mistakes the next time. So I, one thing I learned is that it's important. I know it's important to have an on-ramp with a solar retreat. Mm. An on-ramp is a few days where you do not, um, where you sort of get gradually get into it. So if <laughs> your goal is to sit like, like I was doing four hours, maybe you just start off with your regular practice at an hour at a couple of hours it's very relaxed mm, and you're kind of just mm. getting into it and you're coming down from regular busy traveling around teaching things you know, yeah talking yeah, to people yeah. life into that more contemplative space and i think it's good to do that gradually on a group retreat you don't tend to have that luxury because you've only got a week or two in your group retreat and they you know they want to make the most of it so but then the other thing that's really important is an off-ramp and mm. I didn't, that's something I um, didn't do this summer. I was so loving it, my practice, that, and so having a nice time, that I wanted to keep practicing right up to the moment I had to walk out the door to the airport, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. And that's not, that wasn't so smart. <laughs> because I kind of launched out of the retreat and into life and i still had what they call yogi mind which yeah. is you know you you have to, you just you, your brain just starts working a little differently when you're in that kind of contemplative space and i was sort of going to the airport i couldn't really remember 
why I was doing it. <laughs> what was the point? It wasn't like I was depressed. It was more a sort of, oh, yeah, everything's kind of feels, I just felt like I was still on retreat, yeah, essentially. Yeah, and I just, yeah. So I think a bit of, um, uh, yeah, an off-ramp is also very smart. Yeah, I learned a bunch of other things too, but that's definitely one of them. Nice, nice. And an experience that I had that was interesting regarding the actual meditation part itself uh-huh. was that, of course, one has a certain level of concentration and ability to pay attention to what it is you want to pay attention to. And the opposite of concentration, you could say, is is distractibility. So, mm. you know, and very often when you sit there and you focus on the breath, then suddenly you find yourself washed up like a surfer washed up on a beach. You find yourself thinking about something else. Mm. You're, no, you're no longer contacted with the breath. You think about something else. And you think, oh, I didn't notice that I was thinking about something else. I didn't notice I left the object. Mm. I just found myself washed up on the shore of distraction. And then you're washed up and you go, oh. And then that moment you go, oh, you're no longer distracted. And of course, as we all know, you come back to the breath. Well, as you keep doing that, your concentration can begin to improve. And what previously would have knocked you off mm. into distraction, you get maybe a couple of seconds more lead time mm-hmm. initially. So you're, you get a little bit longer where that material that previously would have knocked you off doesn't knock you off yet, which means you're conscious for something that previously you would have been unconscious for, mm. a little bit of a certain kind of a content. So that's very interesting. You begin to see, or I began to see, certain, well, content. And then, of course, then it knocks you off into distraction and you come back and so on and so forth. Eventually, you can get to the point where you can have entire weather systems of thought or emotion or mm. memory mm. or activation can come up in your body, play out fully, and then die off or recede without losing contact with the object, which means yeah. you're there for the entire thing. Yeah. And that's extremely educational. So I would be on the nose and then the, the mind and the body become like a membrane and suddenly pure anger, <laughs> pure fear coming yeah. up with yeah. thoughts, with feelings. It's pure. It's like distilled, you know, like a, alpine mountain water pure kind of yeah, yeah. Uh, emotional states and, and activations and so on come through and when you experience those in a when, when you're there for them because the peripheral attention is open you're focused on the breath but your peripheral attention is open so one's aware of other things um it's enormously um it felt very purifying it felt very cathartic and it felt very actually very loving Mm, mm, felt mm. very loving to be there for that so yeah that's some nice. experiences i have nice I, I just thank you for sharing yeah so cool um so a, a big discovery for me in the past few months has been the the jhanas um which for for listeners who don't know this stuff it are kind of a, an very old i think even pre-buddhist like maps of um various states of awareness um, that one can go through 
uh, one can develop through awareness practice. I'm, I'm kind of caging that because I'm not. I'm, I'm trying to be careful with the terminology. Um, sometimes called concentration states, but I don't like. I don't like that term because I don't think it's very helpful in getting into them. Uh, otherwise known as what was it? There's a nice translation of jhana, which is something like. Um, it's it's like a stateful awareness or or calm contemplation or it's like those kind of things they 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 frame it with anyhow that's been a a big discovery for me recently in terms of uh, you know reading the literature on it and then having experiences that seem to to match it quite quite precisely in, in a really interesting way and you never know how much of that is scripting and how much of it is is really there. But it seems to be, for in my experience recently anyway, very kind of um, a dependable sequence of events happens in this type of meditation. And I just wanted to to dig into your experience with that and and if it if it kind of informed what you were doing in the the Anapana stuff, which sorry the concentration on breath meditation, also known as Anapana. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Well, now I have more. I still have my um, bookmark question for Jasmine about yeah. her year of doing three hours a day. Yes, uh, yes. Sorry, the, I Sorry, want Jasmine, to come back, we'll to, back that, to that. But, <laughs> but uh, well, that's interesting. So, what what are you doing then with the jhanas? You, you presumably have some sort of technique that you're using to enter into these, yeah. as they're sometimes called absorption states. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I I picked up on um, the the fire casino as it's called um, via Daniel Ingram, who who co-wrote a book on it. Um, and yeah, really succinctly, it is meditating whilst using a visual, uh, some sort of visual focus. It could be as simple as you know, and and like any any object you could use um you know a a piece of paper on the wall or a candle and i started with a candle um lately i've just been using a little torch for the same thing and i've what i found is that very quickly allows me to access these these states um it seems to open a door much quicker than um breathing meditation did for me and and that's um led me into um all kinds of very interesting kind of sometimes quite quite explosive um fireworky experiences through through that door um and what i've been exploring recently is as i mentioned these different stages and and they seem to be kind of progressively opening up as i go through these meditations and they seem to match quite closely as I'm like, what the hell is this? So for the past 10 days or so, this thing started happening and I was like, what the hell? You know, it's, it's what, what just happened there kind of thing. And, and I'm trying to match it to other things I've read about. And my, my, you know, my closest analog for it now is it's probably fourth jhana. That's kind of what seems to be happening in this meditation. What's happening. Can you describe the phenomenology? So, my my first experience of it was okay so so for uh, again for anyone who doesn't know what the jhanas are they they uh, i'll 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 go through them real quick i'll go through them real quick the first one is you're concentrating and you you need to you need effort to concentrate um 
they, they, they I've also read that they go from very light versions of this sort of thing to incredibly deep versions. And I think I'm somewhere in the in the light end of this because I'm not on retreat. I'm just doing daily practice. Um, the first one you need to you need to concentrate. The second one you don't. And all kinds of um, that in the old Pali language, they call them piti and sukha, which are two types of enjoyment. Basically, one is like ecstasy and the other one is like kind of like a kind of real enjoyment of that ecstasy, something like that. Um, that happens in the second one. The third one, you get less of one type of enjoyment and, and some of the other. <laughs> the fourth one, you get neither types of enjoyment. You are just purely in the moment. And that's what started happening to me recently. And this, this, it, I mean, there's a lot more nuance to that description. But at first I was like, why is this thing? I experienced no time or space. And, and, but digging into it more, more, it, it just felt like everything had kind of almost solidified space, time, um, mental sensations, sensations of the body, the, the, the visual object. It w was all just kind of one thing and it was very intense and just like, oh, I've never felt that before. What the hell was that? But digging into it more, there is still time and space in there. And and then I read that the fifth jhana is about the space of the fourth. It's an exploration of the space. And digging into that some more, I mean, this is going to sound so esoteric to anyone who hasn't done this stuff, but that's been my experience. Digging into the fifth, it's like, okay, um, there's actually tons of space here. And it's very, very weird to dig into. It's almost like a feeling of vertigo because sometimes it feels almost like the body disappears. Um, so that's been, in a nutshell, my my recent experiments with <laughs> jhanic mm -hmm. meditation. And um, I just wanted to like run, you know, ask you about how that went with with the the breathing meditation. Basically, did what kind of states were you exploring? Yeah, well, I'm happy to start to to say that. But may I ask you one more question? So, what what's your daily um, routine then, in terms of in terms of practice? I think someone listening mm. to that description might, uh, well, someone listening be me. <laughs> I'm interested um, in uh, what your daily practice is in terms of say so uh -huh. you do half yeah. an hour, or you do sure. you know you, you wake up three in the morning, you do seven hours. You know, <laughs> no, no, it, it's very lightweight at the moment. I mean, I'm doing between. 30 and 60 minutes a day most days mm -hmm. usually in one sit usually in the morning mm -hmm. um and i'm starting by sitting in a quiet or not not so quiet space sometimes i've just got like family and friends next door and it's all kicking off with football on the wall um but i'll focus on a candle or or a, an led light to start with and then continue focusing on that and then focus on the after image um, as I shut my eyes after a minute or so. Um, and that leads into all the other stuff. Basically, that's been my experience of it. Cool. Uh, yeah. So you're asking me now about yeah. Jana specifically regarding the summer retreat. Yeah. Is it something you've explored? And, and did you find that? What, what were your... Uh, I'm just trying to dig into the phenomenology of, of your retreat a bit. Yeah, 
Well, yeah, I have explored Janus to a certain degree, and as you're as you're as you're saying there, there is quite a wide range of uh, interpretations and standards yeah. and methods. Yeah. That's part of the fun of meditation. There's lots of different ideas about it. Yeah, and I actually interviewed someone from the what you would say the lighter end of things, mm. Lee, Lee Brasington. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, who is a student of Ayakema, and he wrote a book called um, uh, "Right Concentration." Yeah, practical guide to the Janas, I think, and that's a really interesting book. So that's, a, I think, one of the well-circulated books about about the lighter end of Jana. Right. And then there are some other, the other end of the pool, where Jana, it's the standards for Jana, what state constitutes, yeah, a Jana state. Yeah. Um, I've interviewed Tina Rasmussen and Stephen Snyder separately. Yeah, a couple of times actually, and they co-wrote a book called um, "Practicing the Janas," and they were a student of um, oh my goodness, it's terrible. So, uh, Pyok Sayador, yeah, Pyok Sayador, who's has had had notoriously high standards for the Janas. Yeah. Including yeah, yeah, maintaining this one thing for like. I mean, hours in his way of thinking about it, it's an absorb. Yeah. Yes, that's for the test. Um, in his way of thinking about it, even the first jhana will be a a non-dual state where subject and object are. You know, the, the subject-object uh, dichotomy is somewhat collapsed, and there's uh-huh. you're not there basically, right? And right. If, you, if right, you're there right. having a jhana, it's not a jhana. That's sort of yeah, their way of yeah, thinking about yeah. it. And so, whereas Lee Brasington would say, you know, you you that those sorts of non-dual states might come much later in the jhanas. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, so, just different ways of going at it. And of course, yeah. they've all they've got their reasons for why they think it's it's light or strong. Uh, my experience of of the jhanas. Um, I think states of complete absorption and dissolution have happened to me accidentally. Mm -hmm. So I'm not able to sit down and go through deep, the deep jhanas like Tina Rasmussen and Stephen uh-huh. Snyder uh-huh. did on their retreat, where uh-huh. part of their test, as you hinted at, they'd have to enter a jhana, and as they enter it, they set an intention to come out. A little bit like, you know, when you, can you, I don't know if you've ever tried this, you can make yourself wake up in the morning. Yeah, yeah. So you have to wake up at like six in the morning, then you can you can set an intention for 5.55. Yeah. You've got an alarm for six, so you don't, you know, lose your job and ruin your life. But on the other hand, you can still play the game and say, right, let me get up at 5.2 or something like yeah, that, yeah, 59 yeah. minutes past five. Yeah, yeah. And you can really set that. And then you you wake up naturally before your alarm. Yeah. That's a fun game. So I think it's something like that. And she, they sit down and they, she would say, okay, Tina or Stephen would have to say, okay, they'd intend to come out of the jhana in two hours or yeah. three hours yeah. or four hours. And they go into the jhana state, entering it at will and exiting, exiting it at will. Yeah. They look at the clock. And if it was three hours, 58, they did not pass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it reminds me of... Um, it reminds me of I, I'm into cut into doing sort of outdoorsy things. Yeah. My very first survival course, we, we were taught to make fires, right? And we, one of our tests was we had to make a three minute fire. Uh-huh. And the idea is to understand the rate of how things, the rate of how things burn. Because it's one thing to be able to make a fire; it's another yeah. thing to understand a fire. Uh-huh. If you make a huge fire. Uh, then there's a saying that if you make a big fire, you keep warm getting firewood. 
Right. If you make a small fire, you keep fi- warm from the fire. Right. So it's up to you, you know, what you want to do. And so you have to kind of learn the rate of burn. And so you make your little fire and and then you try to light it. And then you light it and you'd say to the instructor, okay, time me, time me. And he and time, and then you've got to sit there and wait. And it should be out in three minutes. So you right. know how, you know, you understand. Right. Right. So it's a bit like that. It's an interesting test. It's similar to the Jana test in a way. Um, I would say my summer retreat was not especially focused on the Janas. Yeah. Um, probably more in the somewhat shamatha direction. Hmm. It didn't open up. The Jana angle didn't open up particularly. I was more... Um, I encountered various obstacles mm. in my practice as well, but also, yeah. So I noticed, for instance, sometimes I'd sit down, say it's week three or four, mm. and I sit down and I feel, wow, I'm sitting down to this third session of the day and it feels much like the first one. Mm. Why, you know, why is that? I should be deepening throughout the day, perhaps, maybe, and maybe not. And then I realized any screen time, drastically drains the concentration so okay but my life involves a lot of screen time yeah so okay that's fine so then you work with the effect of screen time yeah and that's a very valid approach yeah i think so um i would say the janas were not a strong feature of this year's retreat in the past they have been yeah stronger but in this one it had more of a kind of Yes, that's some more shamatha kind of feeling, uh-huh. purification, uh, falling in love with the, uh, falling in love with the sort of the kindness of mundane experience. Yeah, I think of falling in love with the mundane maybe would be more characteristic. Nice, nice. and then a lot of classic uh, concentration things came up. I had lots of drowsiness, you know. Yeah, sinking yeah. into sort of these beautiful and that's not a jhana you know it's, you, it feels a little bit like a jhana because you're sort of you know, sinking and it's so nice and the yeah. time goes really fast but yeah it, it lacks the awakeness you say that yeah you need, you need calm you know shine you need calm abiding but you do need that abiding you need the awakefulness right. not right. just the calm right. so yeah that's my answer yeah that's the phrase <laughs> i was looking for earlier calm abiding the nice one yeah yeah nice yeah so before, before, before I forget, Jasmine, uh-huh. can, can you talk to us I'm about I'm just your, going your to thing? quickly go to the bathroom. All right, go for it. Go for because it. I have had too much tea. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I like that we're able to do that in this podcast. This is, it's just a natural chat. You know, you've got to take breaks and <laughs> all the rest of it. <laughs> so yeah. um, the, the, other, the other thing that I, I wanted to dig into, I, I'm also aware we're, we're 52 minutes in. Um, yeah. I've got time. I'm self. I'm. I'm. We are all on lockdown in this country. So <laughs> I know, right? We could. We could talk all day, man. <laughs> you probably could. The next three months. Oh my god! So for anyone listening in the future, we are in uh, the the end of week one of of lockdown. Yes, yeah, sure. Um, just my son there grabbing his iPad. Um, we're we're in the end of the first week, basically, of of lockdown of the UK. And it doesn't feel much like a lockdown yet. But um, the the streets of my my local high streets have got queues in them to the to the food shops, and it's a, just a weird kind of feeling. With you know, we can't buy like eggs anywhere, and like basic sort of things like that are uh, disappearing. Um, it's a strange moment. Um, everyone's freaking out. People are wearing masks in the street, and um, the, the world is going to shut down for a few months. Basically, it's, it's 
as everyone said about this virus. So what what are your what what are your thoughts on it, Steve? And and how how would you recommend for, for anyone who's listening who maybe they don't have any kind of meditation practice or they're developing one for the first time, perhaps via an app or something like that? What would you, what would your advice be to 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 people out there how, how to approach this moment in history? <laughs> You, you went from my thoughts on it to advice on how to approach this moment in history. Okay, let's go with it's thoughts quite, first. Quite, that's easier, right? Yeah. Well, um, yeah. Well, I think maybe the second question. The thing is, okay. from a meditation point of view, yeah, it's business as usual. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, our stock and trade in meditation is human experience. Yeah. Whether it's the sukha of the dukkha, right? You say whether it's the whether it's this full jhanic states or yeah, you know, fear, sickness, death, and you know, in a way, that's that's business as usual in terms of meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, if I was talking to somebody, as you said, who's beginning a meditation practice. I would say something like with high intensity mm. a lower dose has a higher effect. So what I mean by that is mm. there's variables in any let's take physical training situation. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You have variables intensity, frequency and duration. Mm. And I learned these, this way of approaching things from my main meditation teacher, Shinzen Young, or one of my main meditation teachers. And, you know, frequency, if you want to imp- increase your training effect, you can train more often. Yeah. If you want to increase, from a meditation point of view, that would mean maybe doing more than one session a day or going from once a week to three times a week or whatever it is. Uh, if you wanted to increase your your uh, practice the other is duration which means you do it for a bit longer so mm-hmm. rather than five minutes maybe you do 10 minutes or something mm-hmm. like this. maybe then 15 minutes you try 20 minutes so that's an increase in duration and there's also intensity so in a weight training situation that would be a heavier weight mm. yeah. sure you can do more reps you can make the reps last longer doing a slow kind of bench press rather than mm. a fast one or you can put more weight on the bar Mm. Any of those three, any of those three adjustments will affect the the training mm. effect. So, in a time of high stress or a time of very much difficulty, mm. whether it's physical pain, emotional pain, such as fear and uncertainty, uh, hunger, uh, etc., that's like having a heavy weight on the bar. Mm. So often people find that they sit down for their they try to do their meditation and it's just so intense that they yeah. that they can't do it the way they used to or yeah. they can't they can't sit there for a half an hour or mm-hmm. an hour or whatever it is they do because it's just so you know it's so intense what's going on in their life. Yeah. And sometimes I say that one's practice needs to be able to expand and contract. Sometimes you meditate you're getting into it it's very exciting and each day maybe over time you're adding more time and maybe you go from five minutes to 30 minutes or 45 minutes 
your practice is expanding with your enthusiasm. Mm, and then maybe mm. later, pressures of life, your enthusiasm maybe wanes, whatever is the case, circumstances change, you, you, your practice starts to contract. And some yeah. people say, well, if, I've done, if I'm up to 45 minutes, if I go back to 50 minutes, that's rubbish because yeah. you know, I'm going backwards. But actually, that's not true. Just like after you inhale, you have to exhale. Sometimes your practice has to contract from in many different ways. One of them is time. Yeah. It gets smaller. So doing, and so people, sometimes they won't practice at all because they think if they're not doing their 45 minutes, it's not worth it. Yeah. I need my 45 minutes. Yeah. Well, you can do five minutes. You can do 10 minutes. Yeah. And especially in a time of high intensity where there's lots of fear and stress and maybe pain and maybe sickness. Yeah. You know, some people are sick. Uh, not just from coronavirus, but people are sick. People are still sick of other things too. Yeah, yeah. Um, some people, if they're in isolation, may be sick of each other. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're cooped up with your spouse. You know, now you're going to have to get to know each other. Oh, Good yeah. luck. <laughs> anyway, but um, that in increased intensity, um, if you can bring uh, almost devotional uh, quality of good best you can practice for short period of time it's yeah. actually quite good yeah. so in a way from a meditation point of view because seeing as you're asking me to advise somebody who's beginning meditation yeah. um you can be reassured that this is part of the program it's within the uh, stress threshold of meditation it's what it's, it's one of the things it's designed for yeah and that a little goes a long way especially when things are intense yeah yeah that's awesome. And even if you meditate, you may expect to meditate and become calm. What you may find when you meditate is that you actually feel the stress and fear more clearly. Because one of the things that we do when we don't feel very nice is we engage in other activities. Everyone yeah. knows that. You know, have you you do anything else? Read a book. You know, look, watch the Netflix. Do these things, and that's fine. That's part of coping. But when you meditate, there's not an awful lot standing between you and what you're actually feeling, what's there to be felt. Mm, mm, mm. And so you may notice a, um, uh, that you are able to feel more clearly your fear and concern. And you think, well, is that because I'm meditating poorly? No, it's not because you're meditating poorly. Mm. It's because that's underneath. Mm. That's what's actually, you're, that's what's going on inside of you. And you're just contacting it now and seeing it a bit more clearly. So it's nice to know that. And by seeing it more clearly and trying to relax, and trying to let it be there and applying whatever the technique you may have, um, that's a productive way of relating to those things. So over time, uh, you're, um, uh, well, it, it's, it's a good thing, essentially. It improves a little bit your resilience, perhaps, maybe releases and relaxes some of that fear and stress. At the very least, it um, uh, can shortcut a little bit of the drivenness that drives us to do other things yeah uh, because of what we're feeling to escape what we're feeling yeah so a little bit goes a long way in a situation like this yeah there's no guarantee that meditation will make you feel better um, because you may not be feeling very good and if you don't feel very good then when you meditate you're going to feel the not goodness you know and that's part of life and learning to relate to that not goodness more skillfully more openly more honestly um, is uh, in my experience anyway, and in the experience of other meditators, I think a lot of the time, yeah, can be very beneficial. Yeah, yeah, totally. 
I think very, very wise words. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> but my experiences about the actual thing itself, my thoughts about that, well, you know, one of the reasons that I'm interviewing all these people yeah. uh, is to sort of save people from my opinions because I'm interviewing lots of different people. You, you guys, yes, you I've picked up on it, yeah. I may not know that I'm doing this pandemic series. So I'm going through all my old guests and, and lots of new ones too. And I'm asking them questions about how to deal with fear and anxiety, what to, yeah. how, what to do when you're sick from a meditation point of view, not yeah. from a medical point of view, because they're not yeah. doctors. Um, what to do if you're facing death or you're dying. What to do if you want to help other people who are de- who are sick and dying. Yeah. What to, uh, any tips they have for being in isolation for a long period of time, which is sort of a meditator's you know idea of a vacation. So <laughs> what is uh, what advice do you have for people in that situation so i'm getting all these experienced people um give from their point of view from their practice from their traditions sharing insights and one of the things you know that that does is um what gives people a range of things to hear and it saves them from my opinions but um my opinion i would say we there's so much that can be said but we hear about people who are sick or dying we hear about people with cancer, refugees mm. in war-torn countries and so on. And unless it touches us directly, we don't tend to think about it much. Um, mm. Sure, there are some people, you know, getting bombed in Iraq, but, you know, I'm not getting bombed. And mm. after all, what can I do about it? Yeah. You know, who, who cares? Who cares really about, about those people, you know? Maybe you're one's empathetic or sympathetic for a moment and thinks, mm, oh, gosh, mm. the poor people over there. But then you, you turn away and get on with life. Yeah. And there's, but then if you get cancer, you know, or you do lose your home or something, then you become sick. And so, so mm. Suddenly what's, what's a common experience becomes common but sort of distant experience become becomes uniquely personal and pressing mm. it can't be easily ignored mm. now suddenly you know you are sick so one of the things that um one may be surprised about i've, I've had some periods of, of, of quite severe uh, sickness in my life and one of the things that um one may be surprised about is that while yes one's own world is crumbling because when you're sick, it doesn't matter like the percentage of people who get sick from something. If you're sick, <laughs> that's a hundred percent of all the people, yeah. which is you. You know. So actually, then, so one's world is somewhat crumbling and dominated by this, possibly. And actually, the people walking down the street, they're just fine. They don't really, they don't really care. I mean, they may be sympathetic, but fundamentally, they're not sick. And so the opposite happenings, the opposite happens. Whereas before, other people were suffering and you weren't. Now you're suffering and they aren't. <laughs> and that, but that's not much of a relief. It can almost feel like an insult. You know, the people sort of say, how can you sit here and cost a coffee having a cappuccino? You know, don't you know I have cancer? <laughs> you know, don't you know I'm uh, whatever? So one drowns, one can drown in one's separateness and self-centeredness in a way. Yeah. And, it, you know, with Galileo, and Copernicus, before those those kind of guys, people thought that the Earth was the center of the universe, that everything revolved around the Earth. And then Galileo and Copernicus and people like that said, oh, actually, it looks like uh, the Earth revolves around the sun. Oh, oh, so we're not the center of the universe. But actually, also, the sun revolves around, you know, is part of this Milky Way, right? Revolving around another center. Mm. And the Earth is a center, 
relatively speaking, uh, because the moon revolves around the Earth, and satellites revolve around the uh. Earth. So it's not fair to say that the Earth isn't a center. Uh. It's just not the center. Uh. And that's similar to us. It's not fair to say to somebody, you're not the center. Uh, it's, you're, it, well, it's not fair to say to someone, you're not a center uh -huh. of the universe. You, they're just, you're just not the center. So that's one of the things I think that can come from meditating and just life experience also, is to recognize that you're a center among centers. And if you really examine that center, your point of view, um, you know, it has been alleged that one of the things you may notice is that it's fundamentally dependent on relationship with everything else. Uh, it doesn't uh, exist uh. by itself. It exists in relationship to everything else, interdependence. There's an ebb and a flow. You draw from your environment nutrition. You draw from your environment oxygen. You also draw from your environment your own subjectivity. Uh. The only reason I know I'm over here is because you're over there. Now, to you, you're here and I'm over there. But I'm my position in space is is I f I can feel that and define that by my relationship to everything else. I don't have a place of my own. I only have a place in relationship to other things. Mm, and I mm, think mm. you know we also give to our environment. Our actions influence our environment. We're part of the weave of the unfolding. So we're breathing out, drawing from the environment, breathing out. Uh, giving to the environment around us, and that's I think what death is like in a way. It's it's an exhalation, uh. the unraveling of the constituent parts of the body mind, and giving the giving those strands that make up the rope of Bill or Jasmine or Steve, made of all these strands, back to where it was drawn from in the first place. Uh. So that sense of separation between subject and object is an articulation of the interrelationship. It's, there's no alienation fundamentally. Mm, mm. Yeah. Anyway, with that sort of a thinness of um, or broadness of view, then I've noticed that the sheer leafiness of a leaf can be a terrific balm to one's personal suffering. Yeah. Um, because uh, well, and people having a coffee in a coffee shop isn't insulting. It's actually a relief. It's an offering. Yeah. It's sort of the play of the very same life that you are. Yeah. And that's quite wonderful. Yeah, it's quite wonderful. So it's much like any other situation, the one we're in. People go through difficult situations. This is a difficult situation. Sometimes they live, sometimes they die. Sometimes you come out with one or two less body parts. <laughs> Eventually we all die. And we try to make the best of it. And we try to do our best to optimize conditions, huh. which is, I think, the momentum of the organism. That's We can't help but try to do that, huh. and that's good. Um, so... There's nothing wrong with the situation. I don't think we've been cheated or hard done by. Inconvenient as it is to our, my plans and hopes. It's very painful. People are suffering. You know, so we just, I think, try to do what we can, do our best to optimize, to optimize the conditions. One of the examples I sometimes think about in this context is actually a survival example. Let's say you're in a survival situation, your hot air balloon has crashed into the jungle or something, and you're in a situation. People have a variety of different responses to a survival situation like that. Some people go into denial. I think we're seeing that. Some people um, you know, panic and start doing all kinds of unnecessary and unhelpful activity. 
but the best approach is to accept the situation. Mm. Accept it in the sense that one's able to look at it and see it and um, the de- any data that may be coming, you're available to receive it in your situation. And then you've got the best chance of surviving and getting out of the jungle. You might not get out of the jungle, but certainly you have a better chance of getting out of the jungle if you can accept that, yes, you are indeed in the jungle. Yeah. And yes, this is indeed an unpleasant and inconvenient, if we would put it in a very British way, situation. Yeah. Uh, and we have this sort of water and we've got this ability to contact help and we have this and so on. You have to start to assess what is at our disposal. And then you try to do what you can with the data you've got and the resources you have and you, the chips will fall where they, where they will. So this acceptance is not a passivity. It actually liberates mm-hmm. whatever effective action may be available to you. Nice. So, yeah, those are some musings. But for more wise and experienced and diverse musings, please go to my pandemic series of the Guru Viking podcast. Yes, highly recommended. <laughs> GuruViking.com. You heard it here, folks. Um, <laughs> Steve, it's been such a pleasure. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, is there anything, any closing notes you, you'd like to pass on to listeners and, and where can people find you? Yes, I'd actually like to ask Jasmine about her three hours a day for a year <laughs> thing. <laughs> and then the answer to the second question is www.guruviking.com or Steve James on Facebook or Guru Right, Viking. let's go, Jasmine. Let's go. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, so... So what maybe did you do in those be... three years, uh, in those... in in that year what was the technique why did you do it um any interesting things you discovered in that process it's an incredible um experiment so i every time i think of my retreats i like i think of them very fondly and uh the last one i had done at that time was serving on a vipassana course and i found that that was probably one of the most rich formats of a retreat that I, I had ever been on. And it's it's because of three hours is not a short amount of time, so that's minimum. And things, that's enough for, for whatever might be lurking under the surface to arise. And at the same time, it gives you so much energy to be productive in your day-to-day life. So during that time, I had never been so concentrated on serving others and being present. And it was by the time it got to, for example, the second or the third sitting, I would I would be really exhausted. And it was just that like energy injection that I needed, even though I really didn't want to sit every single time. (laughs) And after I came out of the retreat, I thought, what would it be like if I was just on a retreat all the time? Like, why am I confined to having to go to a specific location? Why can't my entire life be a retreat? Mm. Um, so that was why I undertook it. And because I already had the momentum, I just thought, okay, I'm just going to start then. And I had found actually, because it was a while ago, I, I, I don't, I will only remember very, very specific meditations, but for the most part, what I saw 
is that during, as I increased over a period of time, for, there was this like one very clear three weeks where I was changing every single day, but quite drastically. And maybe it was the incremental amount of sitting and reflecting and then being fully integrated into my life. But I experienced a lot of um, shifting in how I was coming, like the alignment of how I was showing up in my life and being able to um, be present and living what I valued on a daily basis. And then that also, the internal reflection started manifesting out to who I spoke to, uh, how I spoke to them, who I wanted to keep in my life, to how I showed up for work, what I even wanted to do. And it just unfold, unfolded like that. And for the areas that weren't really serving me, it became very drastic and severe in this is not for you anymore. And uh, one of the, the hardest moments of it was re the reconciliation of realizing that maybe as I am going on a trajectory, the others who were around me at that time might not be on the same trajectory. And um, for one of it, it was my best friend at the time, uh, who I had been friends with for 10 years. And I also voiced this to her. I said, I, I don't know if we're going to make it to when we're like 60 and like we're grandmas. We had like this dream mm. together. Um, and I, I also asked like her thoughts and reflections on it. And it was, it was actually quite a frightening time. Um, because when you realize that you are living in alignment with yourself, you don't expect it to be also so painful. Um, and to the end of it, after six months, we ended up not being friends anymore. And um, I think the practice was helpful in the sense of holding that space and, um, yeah, being supportive for me. But it, I, I feel like when you do so much uh, meditation over a long period of time, it it like transforms you. I don't know if it's for better or worse but definitely you become more in alignment with yourself and in some ways that feels good but other ways it it's like the growing pains are just really strong yeah um, let me ask you then a question about that is this all right to, to ask you another question? yeah yeah yeah, uh, for sure, yeah. Mm. yeah. <laughs> um that's interesting i've noticed uh myself that on this issue of alignment that one of the effects of meditation, as I mentioned, is you become more, you know, present. When I talked about concentration before, is when your concentration gets a little bit more, uh, and you start to become distracted, it takes you a little bit longer to get distracted, and you start to see a little bit of more of the thing that would have been distracting you. You sort of see it coming in, in a way. You start to say, "Oh, okay." You start to see how you, what your mind's actually doing. You get to know yourself. Also, there could be a sense of sensory clarity where you begin to unravel the threads that make up the rope of certain experiences. So in other words, I think I'm doing one thing, 
And indeed I am, that's the veneer. But the motivations and needs that I'm attempting to satisfy through that action are a myriad, there's many of them. And and one begins to notice, the example of meditation, I think, is when you want to scratch your nose and you don't, and you realize that you don't really have an itchy nose. What it really is, is that you're just sitting there, and for whatever reason, you feel like if you don't do something and act upon something in your environment, you, know, you think, I've got to do something. I feel like agitated or bored or something. So let me just do something, right? And you realize that the itchy nose is just, in a way, it's the, uh, it's the top level of that motivational structure. And I've noticed myself that some of my uh, behaviors have been disrupted when I've begun to penetrate the motivational structures at play. I think, gosh, do I really want to sign off on that? Do I really want to use this behavior for that outcome? Now that I know part of what's, they say that if you knew how the food was cooked, you wouldn't eat at the restaurant. You know, if you could see what the, what goes on in the kitchen, and it's a little bit like seeing what's going on in the kitchen of your mind. And then you go to think, "Wow, I thought I was doing X, but actually, I'm doing all these other things as well." Anyway, that um, I th- notice for myself can cause a bit of a crisis because suddenly you think, "Well, if I'm not going to do that, what am I going to do?" That's the pattern that I know. If I don't do that, you're, t- you're taking a left turn off the rails into any kind of possibility. There are no other tracks because that's just what you've always done. And then you go into this other realm of possibility that's quite can be quite stressful. Well, who am I if I'm not that person who does that thing? It could be a bit of an identity crisis or certainly it can be a little bit of an action crisis. Well, if I'm not going to fulfill my needs this way or if I'm not going to pursue that course of action, what do I do with it? How do I do it? What do I make left or right? Anyway, um, that's an, an anatomy of an experience that I've no- or trend I've noticed to do with what I think you're talking about when you say integrity or you know authenticity or alignment. But what's the anatomy of that alignment piece that you you're describing? Uh, it it almost feels like as something arises and you see that let's say it's not necessarily serving you, and then. I think it, it it happens outside of the meditation actually. Mm. It um, in seeing how something is and the real reality of it, then acting on actually it's true that this doesn't serve me, and mm. how do I what what yeah what course of action do I take in such a way that inside I definitely know that that's right for me. Right. So for myself, it was will I still continue this friendship or how does it evolve after this? Or yeah, is it, is it right? And actually it ends up being that after a long period of trying, there was, there were no actions to take. And Mm. so it ended. Um, So in that kind of sense of doing what is actually right for you and also what's right for them as well. Because maybe I wasn't showing up as a friend that they needed either. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the actions that I was taking, even my meditation, was confrontational to them and reflected in them maybe something that they uh, didn't like or didn't feel good about. And so we spoke about that. And yeah, so for both parties, it's not in alignment and in accordance with where we're at. That's very interesting indeed. 
Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. And most of my meditations actually I find are closer to uh, more painful experiences as opposed to joy. Um, whether it's just like things coming up and maybe they're like very deep-seated traumas or whatever it might be, but a lot of the time it's painful in my experience, like so physical pain. Why do you continue if it's painful? It feels like well, how I, I've come to see pain is that it, it's something that's asking for your attention and um, it's, all, it's like everything else, like asking to be loved and to be seen. And it's there for a reason. It's not just something that you need to push away. It's like, what, what, I also want to really understand why am I hurting? If it seems like from the outside, I'm not like, what is there that I don't know? And how can I come to know that part of myself that feels that way? Or is it a part of the human condition that we all feel that way to some level anyway, because we have that capacity? And is it that I need to come to know that feeling more? Um, at that time, uh, maybe to understand others, or I feel like it's just there for a reason and just to look inwards. That's a very interesting last point you made. I think that, you know, we, we were saying last a little bit earlier that I was that often we know people are sick or something like that, you know, people have sickness and so on, but we don't really often spend a great deal of time and energy thinking about it or worrying about it or empathizing about it. Um, and one thing that's interesting, though, if, if you do get sick, if one does get become ill with something or diagnosed with something, suddenly uh, you have something in common with all those other ones that have got it. There's a sort of kinship. You're in a sort of special kind of a club. And it's ability to relate. So any, any loss or difficulty you've had, that someone else has had similarly, in a way, you've been to the same territory. And there's, I've noticed an availability, relational availability, which I suppose traditionally may be called something like compassion or something like this, but more of that naturally and spontaneously available to the more I suffer. <laughs> uh, that's I very agree interesting. completely. I agree. It, it's like there's a that quote, I, I can't remember if it's from Maya Angelou, but or maybe it's Mother Teresa, but until you experience like the depths of your pain, mm. only then can you really understand how, how it means to be kind. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, it's like the pounding of the suffering on the seed of your heart <laughs> releases the oil of <laughs> compassion in a way, and it's the willingness to feel, willingness to feel a certain spectrum of experience that allows you to um, relate, I think, to people in that way. That's a beautiful quote. I, I, that, I, I, you, you hear it also in like Khalil Gibran, isn't it, on sorrow and on joy, isn't it that the flute that was carved by the, the person who makes flutes um, create the sound which is so beautifully heard when we hear the music? Yeah, I have a poem here on my shelf that's to do with that. Sometimes, like a lot of people ask, like, well, why is this happening? Like, why do I, I feel this? And 
uh, a teacher once told me like you don't really need to know you're already there and for me that was very releasing because now it doesn't matter what I experience it's just how can I find deeper learning from it it doesn't matter why why I'm experiencing it like if for it can vary from like okay maybe I'm saying talking about pain now but then it can go from anything to oh I see colors or I, I feel this type of state or like maybe these jhanas or this that and the other and for me I, I don't think I've ever been results focused after the, the point in which he said that and it was actually me asking him oh why are these colors here or like why is there no sounds in my mind or like and he said you just don't need to worry about that like you're already there and I was just like oh my gosh you know mm. this entire like worrying and oh man it that released a lot for me and so now I almost have no goal orientation except to get to a place where I love myself deeper very interesting yes that um <laughs> the problem with goals is an ambition is that it can you you can reject or miss what's actually happening, isn't it? Mm. Of course, what is actually happening is that you have goals and orientations. <laughs> so I think it's one of those great riddles, isn't it? That the journey of it's a great journey of a thousand miles. That or it's a great journey of a great distance. But the distance is zero. <laughs> so you go on this great long journey to find yourself at the place that this is what Shinzen Sama says. You, you go on this great long journey to find yourself at the place that you always were. Uh, <laughs> That's the cosmic joke uh, of meditation. We do all these maneuvers, uh, and we, uh, we where do we end up? Right here. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. That's it. That's why it's such a funny hobby. Okay, so here's this cool um, poem by a- Antonio Machado. Last night as I was sleeping. Have you guys ever heard this one? I think so. Go for it. Never. Yeah. It's, um, last night as I was sleeping, I dreamt, marvelous error, that a spring was breaking out in my heart. I said, along which secret aqueduct, O water, are you coming to me? Water of a new life that I've never drunk? Last night as I was sleeping, I dreamt, marvelous error, that I had a beehive here inside my heart, and the golden bees were making white combs and sweet honey from my old failures. Last night as I was sleeping, I dreamt, marvellous error, that a fiery sun was giving light inside my heart. It was fiery because I felt warmth as from a hearth, and sun because it gave light and brought tears to my eyes. Last night as I slept, I dreamt, marvellous error, that it was God I had here inside my heart. And the thing about that poem, it's so interesting, these metaphors of the heart, a spring breaking out in the heart is the first metaphor. And I think it's like that sometimes you have this upwelling of love, compassion. It seems to break out from the hard ground of your of my, of our, whatever, of the hard ground. It comes in and it's like, wow, where did you come from? Along which secret aqueduct or water are you coming to me? Water of a new life that I've never drunk. And that's the other thing about compassion is that it, and love, it always feels and tastes fresh. Even though it's the one taste that everything tastes of, somehow it's always fresh and new and 
you know, as delightful uh, to taste as it as the first taste. And then the next metaphor is about the beehive. I have a beehive and the golden bees making white combs and sweet honey from my old failures. And that, that says speaks to me anyway of that. Our failures and difficulties and sufferings are, in a certain sense, making that sweet honey of take compassion, openness, sweetness, tenderness that comes from, as we've been discussing. Yeah. And then the last part about the fire, and it says, uh, a fiery sun was giving light inside my heart. Fiery because I felt warmth is from a hearth. And isn't it the case that sometimes love has a warming effect? The cold, austere lines and forms uh, and emotions, even like pain, as you said, can be warmed somehow and uh, loved into a, uh, with that. And, and then the sun, because it gave light and brought tears to my eyes. I also think compassion allows us to see things more clearly because with compassion, you're willing, that's the light part, you're willing to see and feel and actually be with. You described being with your pain. You're, you're able to, you're saying you meditate and it hurts a lot, but somehow that's not a problem. Being with your pain is not a problem. You've learned that pain is for a reason and you said, and that you can actually love your pain and that actually loving your pain is a good thing <laughs> to do. So pain needs love too, you know? And then the brought tears to my eyes part. I think that's what happens, isn't it? Sometimes the eyes leak when, uh, when love and compassion is, is there for whatever reason, you know, I think it's a thing that humans beings do. We, we sometimes have tears that come when we feel that compassion, you know? So it's a marvelous and mysterious thing to be a human being caught in the midst of going and coming and wanting and not wanting and sort of from pressed from the outside, pressed from the inside, you know, viruses, <laughs> you know, all sorts of things happening. And it's what, what, a, what a strange thing it is to be alive. Steve, thank you so much. I've really got to go. Jasmine, <laughs> thank you also. Such a pleasure. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Jasmine. And, um, yeah. Thank you. Let's connect as well. Yeah. On some form. Let's do that. Yeah. Yeah, we should all stay in touch. It's a shame we can't we couldn't do this in person, but thanks so much for inviting me, Bill. Nice to meet you, Jasmine. Yeah, lovely Such to a pleasure. meet you. Okay. Thank you for sharing as well all your thoughts. Um it'd be great to get that uh, a link poem. to that poem. <laughs> we can drop it in the uh the, the author in the show notes. And Yeah, I can send it. I can send it to yeah. you. Yeah. Thank you so much. And um, thank you to anyone who's listening. Do let us know what you thought of the, the episode. And uh, <laughs> we'll, there'll be more soon with a bit of luck. Thanks, Steve. So, so good, both of you. Have a wonderful day, both of you. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, brilliant.